The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Howard French, former New York Times and Washington Post correspondent in Japan and China, among other places, and currently a professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. His book, Everything Under the Heavens, How the Past Helps Shape China's Push for Global Power, was published a couple of months ago. Congratulations on the book, and thank you for taking time to speak with me today. Thank you, Margo. It's good to be back with you. The overarching theme of your book is that much of China's present foreign policy behavior can be explained by its traditional concept of tianxia, usually translated into English as all under heaven. You translate it somewhat differently. Could you explain what the expression means and why your different rendering is significant? Um, what it means first, uh, I guess I would begin by saying that um, uh, China throughout almost its entire history, the thing we today call China, it wasn't called China in the past, um, has had has been accustomed to being um, disproportionately larger than any other people or civilization nearby. Uh, and this fact, plus the fact of the sheer longevity of Chinese civilization, plus the fact of um, Chinese achievement as measured in any number of ways, from economic advancement to um, cultural matters, um, have bred a set of attitudes um, in uh, the Chinese mind or in the Chinese culture about China's place in the world. Um, I should pause to say that if one scratches a little bit, one will find in every culture a series of attitudes is bred by a combination of, 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 of basic givens about that country. So this shouldn't be taken as a statement that China is in any way unusual for having a set of attitudes. Only It's only the details of China's attitudes that are special. Um, and to speak to those details, what is special about China, I find, um, as a result of thinking about this and researching this for, for a number of years, is that China takes as a norm and as an ideal uh, consciously or unconsciously, that it should be preeminent in its neighborhood, um, and that a, a reliable basis for harmony and peace and, and the creation and sharing of wealth is that other peoples nearby should recognize China's preeminence. And on that basis, everyone will get along perfectly well, and uh, the other parties will benefit because China will very generously uh, bestow upon them uh, the fruits of its civilization and access to its wealth. This is Tian Sha. You've written a book that is both a history and an account of contemporary China. Let's start with the history, of which there is a lot. Anyone who spends any time in China or reading about China quickly hears about its 5,000 years of history, often glorious history, how did you go about figuring out what in Chinese history matters when trying to understand the impact of the past on the present? Well, it was largely determined by this phrase, Tian Sha, 
Um, and by the way, I didn't tell you why I rendered it differently. I just think it sounds better. Ah, everything see. under the heavens uh -huh. sounds better than everything under heaven or all under heaven. Um, and it means the same. So I, I chose the marginally more poetic rendering. Um, uh, the time frame that I um, uh, um, worked with was driven by this very set of attitudes that I've referred to. Um, prior to, and these attitudes uh, really begin to take force in the Han Dynasty. So the Han Dynasty begins around 220 BC, 221, something like that. Um, uh, and this was after China had been unified, unified by the preceding dynasty, the Qin Dynasty. Uh, before that, there was no um, consistent notion of making far-flung neighboring civilizations submit to China or pay tribute to China because the principal business at hand for the, st the states, the warring states that came together by force to constitute what we now call China, was unification. The struggle was to unify these, these kindred cultures into a single unitary whole that we now know as China. And so all under heaven, you could say, existed during the Qin dynasty, but would have only applied to these kindred cultures, that the struggle was to make all of them recognize the authority of the emperor, which, of course, ultimately uh, took place uh, as um, uh, um, uh, Qin Huangdi prevailed in the series of wars that led to the unification of China. My book is concerned, concerns China's relations outward into the broader world. Um, and so this, uh, this second manifestation of Tian Shao only begins in the Han Dynasty. You talked just now about the kindred states, for mm -hmm. lack of a better word. Would those people have considered themselves Chinese before the Qin? No. Um, the, the most accurate technical answer to your question is nobody considered themselves Chinese until the beginning of the 20th century. Chinese as a concept is barely 100 years old. Um, people considered themselves Han. Mm -hmm. There was a notion of um, a racial and ethnic entity called Han that mm -hmm. dates much further back. But this was a construction which only begins with the Qin dynasties. Um, uh, standardization of, 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 the, of the script and of measures and various other things, taxation, law, etc., etc. Um, prior to that, just as in China today, the spoken languages of these different constituents were not necessarily mutually comprehensible, as is the case with Chinese dialects today. Mm -hmm. China insists, I think, for political reasons, that there are a number of dialects in China. I think if you ask most non-Chinese linguists, they will tell you those are not dialects, those are languages. Mm -hmm. um, Shanghainese or the various languages of Fujian province or, or Zhejiang, etc., are not mutually comprehensible and therefore, according to most Western standards, should be called languages. But for political reasons, China, back in the Qin dynasty, slaps a unified script on them uh, and then in subsequent periods of Chinese history, uh, emphasize what unites all of these people in the construction of a Han race, like any race, and is, it is an artificial thing, so that the country or the civilization would be able to resist centripetal forces better and to remain whole. You describe traveling to a lot of places, particularly in Southeast Asia, 
where there are memorials of various kinds to events and people in Chinese history. Why did you feel that you had to or wanted to go to these places, and what did you discover? Um, so th this is a, inevitably becomes a personal question, because um, you asked me why did I decide to do something. So a motive gets down to personal stuff, and I mean that in a good way. Um, the this book is a, in a very large part a work of history. I'm not an academic historian. I'm a lover of history. I, as anyone who looks at the book will quickly notice, I've, I did quite a lot of bibliographic work, research for this book. I spent a long time reading for this book. I, I, I'm still not an academic historian, but I think I've given um, a serious, I've, I've, I've committed a serious study of history here. Mm -hmm. um, however, I am in my bones still a journalist. And so I've got this book, and I've never quantified it, but let's say it's 80% historian kind of writing. I, I didn't feel completely um, authorized or even willing to uh, cast aside the tools of journalism and to get into those clothes and to inhabit them uh, the way I have in most of my career. And that requires wandering. Okay. Um, and so in wandering, not only do I exercise the, the tools of journalism, but I discover things in a way that journalists discover them. And, and so uh, the book is about China's relationship uh, with the periphery. So most of the travel in the book is actually in the Chinese periphery. I speak to Chinese people in China in the book, but I don't describe the travel related to that. The travel that's described is in the Philippines, it's in Vietnam, it's in um, uh, Japan and various other places. And, and what journalists discover that historians don't always discover is that when you bump into strangers and start scratching them and answering, asking questions, you begin to discover things that you didn't necessarily expect to discover. And mm -hmm. that's a joy of this particular profession. And it makes it very real. You are sweaty in these vignettes, and you're standing and looking out, and you describe that. It's very different from book learning. Right. Uh, you know, that was maybe a secondary goal. I was doing it, the first impulse was because that's what comes most naturally to me. I'm delighted to hear that. Um, I was a little bit self-conscious about donning the hat of a, of, a, of a historian, and so I thought oh, this, will, this will balance out some of that and take off some of the edge of the sort of pretentiousness of being a historian when I'm not really professionally a historian. It's not pretentious at all. <laughs> it works very well. Thank you. Um, Coming to the present, your description of some of China's actions in the Asia-Pacific region is, in many cases, quite daunting, even frightening. Are there countries in the region responding, I'm sorry, how are countries in the region responding to or reacting to China's actions? I'm thinking of Japan and the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands, Vietnam and the Philippines and the South China Sea disputes. Well, the real driver of regional behavior in response to China's ambition and China's recent assertiveness has been in the has been the situation in the South China Sea. Japan indeed faces off against China in the East China Sea around the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands, but Japan does so as insofar as the region is concerned, all alone. Of course, it has an alliance with the United States. That's very important. Otherwise, one suspects China would have been considerably more assertive already. Um, 
but no regional players are coming to Japan's help or assistance in this matter, and or allying overtly or 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 discreetly with China with Japan around that dispute. Where the action is is in the South China Sea, where a whole sort of grab bag of players have become involved, and these stretch all the way from India to the Korean Peninsula, South Korea, um, and almost no one, uh, in almost no instance can I think of a case where any of these nations have declared themselves as kind of coalescing against China, but it's very hard to read their behavior in uh, arms sales, in military assistance packages, in joint drills, uh, in military aid, I've said assistance, um, in all sorts of um, sharing of intelligence and and visits back and forth of, of delegations that all relate to security matters. It's very hard to, to, to construe this as anything other than a, a, a kind of effort at soft balancing. I say soft as opposed to hard balancing, which would be, okay, we have a, we have a formal alliance. And so the countries that are involved are Japan as a patron, as a kind of a catalyst that has deep pockets that's helping Vietnam and various other Philippines and various other players to equip themselves better, uh, but also South Korea, which is selling weapon systems and more discreetly than Japan providing technical expertise. Uh, and then Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, perhaps a little bit, and on and on. You get really interesting facts in there when you're going through the history, um, lots of details of Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and China, fascinating back and forth, backs and forths. Mm -hmm. I got a little bit, I'm glad that you found it uh, to be fascinating. I got, I kind of, I had I visited Vietnam um, many times over the years, but I've never worked or lived, lived or worked in an extended way in Vietnam. I don't speak the language obviously either. Um, and I kind of became enraptured with Vietnamese history. Mm. Um, this, w this book was an excuse to really dig deeply in Vietnamese history in a way that I had not done before. Um, uh, and so, and also with the history of, of uh, present day, uh, the, the, the Malay cultures of present day Indonesia and Malaysia, et cetera. Um, uh, and so uh, those are, I think, the two areas where I sort of Carried away sounds negative, but um, where I had the most fun, mm -hmm. kind of digging around in the library and trying to understand the kind of long-term relations with, with this gigantic, powerful, rich entity that we call China over the ages. Mm -hmm. You mentioned South Korea just now, but not North Korea, and I wonder. It's obviously been in the news a lot lately. What are the implications of your? argument, your discussion, for how the U.S. should deal with China when it comes to North Korea? I think the United States has a fundamental and persistent misunderstanding of possibilities with regard to the Korean Peninsula. Um, Donald Trump is not the first president uh, of the United States to think that if we could only convince the Chinese to see things our way. Uh, they, their influence could be brought to bear on the North Koreans in such a way that the whole crisis of nuclear weapons and intercontinental missiles could be diffused. I think that's naive. Um, naive because the Chinese, I don't believe, have any failure of understanding either American interests in the matter, 
or the threat to international peace that the Korean, uh, North Korean weapons uh, programs pose. The problem is that the Chinese leadership, like the American leadership for that matter, or for the leadership of any serious nation, has to prioritize its own sense of national interests. And Chinese national interests at the highest level with regard to the Korean Peninsula uh, call for um, uh, preventing a calamitous collapse of a regime on their border. That's the first priority. And the second priority is preventing the reunification of the Korean Peninsula on terms that could be problematic or perhaps even hostile toward China at some future date. Those are, those are priorities number one and two. Priority number three, perhaps, is let's not have a nuclear war between the United States and the North Koreans. It's not any failure of the Chinese to understand the importance of, do, of, of, of preventing that that has stopped them from coming to see eye to eye with the Americans on, on this issue. It's because China has more urgent concerns. Uh, and to speak to the concern about a calamitous collapse of, of China, just to bring this home to your audience. Of China of, or of, of North Korea, Korea. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, to, to bring this home to your the, what this means to your audience, there's a very large ethnic Korean population in northeastern China that has very old roots. I've been to these towns, places where all of the signage on the streets is in Korean. Mm -hmm where all of the first language of most of the people is Koreans. We're talking about millions of people. If North Korea were to collapse, people make the mistake of thinking this is mostly a refugee problem for, Korea, for China, that a bunch of Korean refugees would pour in and this would be very costly for China. That may be true, but I don't think that's the big problem. The big problem is, I think, in the Chinese mind, that a big influx of, of new Koreans in northeastern China could somehow revive uh, revanchist claims of this population, which say uh, that this part of China, it has really rightfully has always belonged to Korea. Mm -hmm. This is really Korea. This is sacred Korean territory. And if the numbers were to be augmented it, it, uh, after in the wake of a gigantic disruption or collapse of the regime in North Korea, the numbers of Koreans flowing into China were to be were to grow sufficiently. Um, the Chinese fear that not only would you have this sentiment be awakened, but you would have you know large numbers of people willing to make trouble around this issue. That's destabilizing for China. China's the Chinese state's first priority is maintaining stability in China. So it's not about refugees in the first instance. I don't think for them. I think it's more importantly about uh, um, sort of uh, preventing uh, the emergence of this revanchist kind of sentiment um, and, and, and the building of the Korean minority in China. So what are the implications for the U.S. and how the U.S. should behave towards China vis-a-vis -vis North Korea? Well, I don't think it's wrong to ask China to do more. I just think it's um, one is um, perhaps being slightly delusional to think that the Chinese are going to see this issue ever the way the Americans see this issue, that the Chinese don't have rightfully their own hierarchy of interests in the matter, and that their hierarchy of interests and our hierarchy of interests are not going to ever really align. Towards the end of the book, you talk about some of the 
domestic challenges that could have an impact on how China conducts its own foreign policy, many of which are demographic. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, put most simply, um, uh, China is going to tilt from a situation which demographers call um, the um, uh, uh, a, a demographic uh, dividend when you have a disproportionate number of people in the young ye working years of life compared to older people to a situation where you're going to have the mirror opposite where you'll have a very high proportion of older people. This is going to happen on a scale never seen anywhere before and with a speed rarely seen anywhere before. And it's going to happen precisely in the next 10 or 15 years. That's when it's going to begin to happen at full speed. It's already begun now, but within 10 or 15 years, this process is going to have, will have kicked in fully and the numbers will be simply mind-boggling. And I think that this will um, pose um, immense challenges to the Chinese state and cause a, a rearranging of uh, budgetary and political priorities for China's leaders. And I think that a lot of Xi Jinping, the current president's um, behavior today, can be understood in these terms. Um, that he understands that China has a window of opportunity before all of this really kicks in in full gear to lock in a certain number of gains. And so you see one belt, one road, building infrastructure to integrate in Central Asia and even Europe with the Chinese economy. And uh, you see the assertiveness in the South China Sea, and you see the building of a new uh, aircraft carrier and possibly other aircraft carriers. A whole series of behaviors that involve enormous investments that have nothing to do with social spending that are being taken right now precisely because in 10 to 15 years, the urgency of social spending is going to be such that if you haven't done these other things by then, it's likely you'll never get them done. And so I think this is a big and very underappreciated driver of Chinese behavior today. You come out at the end, and this has to be the last question because we're really out of time, seeming quite optimistic about the implications of where China is now and where it will be in 15 or 20 years for the United States, although you do say that the next 15 or 20 years may be tricky. Um, how would you describe the implications for the U.S. and its policy towards China and the region? Well, um, so I generally agree with the way you characterize the ending, except I would make the caveat just a little bigger. I think this is the next 10 to 15 years are uh, a period of heightened risk between the United States and China. That the, you know, because China is trying to lock in these gains and is behaving in a more assertive manner, the, the opportunity for conflict, whether deliberate or accidental, has, is, has begun to rise and will continue to rise during this period. If we can get through this period, then my optimism kicks in, that China will begin to make this shift toward um, uh, favoring canes over favoring guns, that you have to build a social security system, you have to build a safety net, you have to do all of the things required to take care of 
people with chronic diseases, by 2050, there'll be 350 or 400 million people over the age of 65. Uh, China is going to have to come to terms with that. Um, and this, I think, offers a very good prospect. No one can be certain about anything projecting that far out, but a very good prospect of China becoming a, let's use the, the first George Bush phrase, a kinder and gentler nation, <laughs> that it has to turn its, the, the bulk of its concerns inward. Uh, and this will be driven, in fact, a lot by the emergence, the continued emergence of a middle class in China. Middle class people have middle class expect, expectations wherever you find them. Uh, not just of com the comfort of the, 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 the sort of working age people, but of how their parents and grandparents will be taken care of. And the Chinese state is going to have to reinvent itself and find a, 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 a so far non-existent capacity for dealing with these kinds of problems. Um, and, and if we can get through this period, uh, great. Uh, getting through this period is going to require doing things almost entirely opposite from what the United States has been doing throughout the bulk of this very brief, so far, Trump administration, and that is deepening its alliance behavior. Um, uh, having a team around the president who really understands Chinese society. Um, Trump boasts that he gets along really well with Xi Jinping, but, but you don't really see a whole architecture of people who know China in the Trump administration anywhere, whether it's state, national security, defense, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you just can't manage a relationship this big without more hands on deck and more depth of experience. Couldn't agree more. We have reached the end of our time. Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, Margot.